Paul's audiences in his ministry frequently featured people who lived in the atmosphere of idolatry and immorality. When those people believed on Christ, old things passed away and all things became new. So sharp was the transformation, however, that their neighbors and friends began to consider the Christian converts as subversive. As Peter said, they thought it was strange that their former compatriots no longer ran with them to the same excess of riot. And so they accused the Christian converts of being evildoers, of being subversive to society. The unbelieving Romans suggested that the followers of Jesus of Nazareth were a threat to the safety and stability of the Roman government. It was true that the Christian converts did become strange in contrast to the prevailing attitudes of imperial Rome. They did become aliens in a hostile environment. From the seedbed of that hostility and suspicion sprang eventually the reign of terror that began principally in the time of Nero. That reign of terror that sent thousands of our fellow believers to their deaths. Many of those believers suffered cruel tortures and even crueler deaths. Yet almost without exception, they endured those trials with equanimity of mind and peace of soul. The spectators at the Roman arenas who gathered to watch these Christians be put to death became impatient with the way in which the their deaths. They showed no fear. Instead, they recited verses of Scripture and sang hymns until there was no breath left in their bodies. How did they do it? Their conduct in the arena was the result of the fixation of their minds on the truth. God loved them. Now those believers had struggles. Their lives were not easy. It was true they came out of the pagan culture. And many of them remarkably separated themselves from that culture. But the culture was still there. It was still about them. They had as well the consciousness of their past life as part of that culture. 
They had gone to idol temples. They had engaged in immorality. So the question they had to face was, how could they be sure that they were really out of it? How could they be certain that they would still not have to account for their past activities in that culture? The answer of Paul and of the other apostles was clear. It was the love of God. There is no gospel appeal more powerful than that appeal of the love of God. When writing to the Romans, as we have found, Paul developed for them the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. And as we have seen already in this chapter, he made the application of that truth in terms of each believer's confidence. When he came to this text, this famous text, he declared that there is no doubt about each believer's position in Christ. He pointed the Romans toward the cross and underscored the truth of love's sacrificial evidence. And I want you to think upon that theme as we prepare to partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. It's God's purpose to bring us together today to remember Christ's death at the Lord's table. I was thinking it's the 33rd anniversary of the first time we gathered around the Lord's table as a congregation. We remember the reality of what Christ suffered on the cross. We remember today, as we partake of the elements, that Jesus died for us. Those who have trusted in Christ... Rest on the work that Christ did on the cross. The Lord's Supper teaches us every time that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This text gives you the answer that you need then to meet the forces of doubt on the battlefield of your soul. These words lead you to Calvary to behold again the bleeding form of the Son of God. It is the end of doubt about whether God loves you. We remember Christ's death today as the display of the love of God for sinners. And I want you to notice Three simple aspects of this love. First, the source from whom love comes. It is God. God commendeth his love for us. That is, God is not passive in our salvation. Christ did not enter the world by the accident of history. God proves his love 
He commends his love for his people by sending Christ to die for them at Calvary. So the fountain of this love is God. God knows all things. His love is even more spectacular. Because there is nothing hidden from him concerning us. Concerning those upon whom he has set his love. If God loved his people knowing their innate character and their enmity against him, there's nothing in any of those people that holds or extinguishes that love. In fact, in the context, there's a hint of that very thing. Because in verse 7, Paul wrote, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. That is, you would be hard-pressed to find for a righteous man someone willing to sacrifice his life. Maybe, peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But there's the greatest doubt about that. But Christ died for sinners. God's love is not the delusion of his standards. He doesn't say to his people, well, that's all right. I love you, so I'm going to overlook all that you have done against me. He upholds his law. And he insists on the satisfaction of all his eternal requirements. So that this love pours out of God's grace God's grace means that his love is upon his people for no cause except what comes from God himself. God did not love you or set his love upon you because you were something special. God loved you because he loved you. We have no way to explain it except that his love has no reference to any cause in you. There are people who have the idea that because they do good deeds, God will have to love them. They think that the love of God is God's response. It's, God's, it's the merit that rises from the works that people do in the flesh. But in our text today, love is all of grace. That's the source of God's love. And that truth brings us to consider the second main division of the text, the people whom God loves. The people whom God loves. We learn in our text the character that we possessed when God set His love upon us. God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet Sinners. We were sinners. We were totally depraved. We fell short of the glory of God. And in what did that shortcoming consist? It consisted in not rendering perfect obedience to every part of the law of God. 
We didn't render perfect obedience. Sometimes people say, well, I'm doing the best I can. Really? It's not enough. Sin is the missing of the mark. So here's a description of us all. We've all missed the mark. In our natural state, we have missed the mark of God's standard. We have come short. And as a result, we have fallen under the condemnation of God. Even as John said, John the Baptist said, the wrath of God abideth on him, meaning we're already, by virtue of our birth into this world, we're already under the wrath of God. So that even what people may judge to be noble in others, God considers sinful. Because people do what they do, ultimately, for the vindication of themselves. How awful a thing it is then to miss the mark of God's standard. When we considered the words of verse 6, we saw that we are without strength. And you may remember that when we talked about that, we talked about what it is to be without strength. It is to be without ability. It is to be unable to do anything. We looked at chapter 8 and verses 7 and 8 at that ringing statement concerning ability. We can look at those verses again. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Here's a statement about ability. So that by nature, we are apart from God. We are cut off from God. And God is not in all our thoughts. That's what it means to be sinners. But it means far more. Because to be without God is to be without hope. There was the condition in which we were when Christ died for us. Lest we ever think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It was for sinners. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Apart from Christ's death for us, we were without hope. We read of the lives of people in the past. Many times you don't even know who they were, what their names were. The evidence that they leave behind, that archaeologists on earth Sometimes their bodies. And yet those were people. They went about their time in this world. But as far as we can tell, they were without hope. So were we. When Christ went to die for us. 
And that brings us to the third aspect of our text, the argument of God's love. The argument of God's love. God commended his love for us. That is, he provided the evidence. As you would in a court, you would produce evidence to prove a case. God proved the case of his love for us by sending his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And when his only begotten son went to the cross, there was the argument of God's love. Let us turn back again to those to that verse that we considered not too long ago at some length in Romans chapter 8. Verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. He delivered him up for us all. Here was the argument of God's love. You have any question about whether God loves you? Look at what happened on the cross. God delivered up His only begotten Son for us while we were yet sinners. When we were in hopelessness, when we were in enmity against God, Christ died for us. We look at that again in our text. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a statement of historic fact emphasizing the historical reality of what Christ did. He died for us in our place, in our behalf. The substitutionary nature of Christ's death is wrapped up in this text. God commends His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enmity, in, at enmity with God, Christ died for us. That enmity of which we read in the epistle to the Romans left us without any basis on which to claim the favor of God. We read that Christ died for us. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, what is it that we recall? We recall that apart from that intervention of God's love to send Christ to the cross, to deliver him up for us all, to die for us, apart from that sacrifice of the cross, we should have been lost forever. So we come to remember that it was not for anything in us, 
but in accomplishing his own eternal purpose that God sent Christ to die for us. It is what we remember as we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper.